Enjoying Jesus together. Get everything starting again. Lifetime starts on Tuesday, gatherers on Thursday, youth study again on Friday, life groups kicking off again. Feels good to, to get back into the year again. And uh, it's the first time I've preached for a while. I've done my normal, normally take a few weeks off from preaching over the summer. Uh, preached a couple of times in the States when I was there, but first time I preached here at Gateway for a few weeks. So. Uh, good to be back into it. And uh, the past two days, Friday and, S- and Saturday, the elder team were away together. We do this each year at this time. We go down to Dartmoor to a kind of shed on Dartmoor, and we have a 36 hours there to pray and plan together. And we had an outstanding time together, uh, talking through a lot of stuff and uh, preparing for the coming year and feel excited about what God is going to do amongst us over this coming year. So, Lord, we pray. Pray you be with us now. Pray, Lord, as we start a new series, that you'd help us these five weeks as we look at these themes we're going to be studying. Lord, pray you'd help me as I speak here for the first time in a few weeks. I pray this would be a, a good season for us as a church in which we know much of the favour of God and proclaim the blessing of God to the community around us in Bournemouth and Paul. Amen. Amen. Now, I will be shooting off after I finish to go and speak down at 502, so when I leave the door, it's not because... I'm upset with anybody, it's because I'm going under 502. I'm actually planning to be here the next three Sundays, but I'll be doing both services, so we'll be coming and going in a little bit. Um, last Saturday, the Hosier family went out to Dorchester to the Dorset County Show, which we, we love. It's uh, our annual treat if we manage to get out there. And uh, at the County Show, there's lots of animals, and of course, there are, amongst the animals, there's a whole um, marquee full of chickens, and we like to look at the chickens. And when you look at chickens, one of the things you think about with chickens is the pecking order, that uh, chickens peck each other to find out who's in charge. Now, the pecking order is a term that was invented by Norwegian zoologist Thorleif Scholderup Ebb in 1921, and uh, he gave it the German terms, Hackendenung, or Hacklist. There's something great about German, isn't there? <laughs> How was my pronunciation there, Nancy, as, uh, as the excellent German speaker? <laughs> Terrible. Thank you. Um, and in 1927, it's only 90 years ago, this phrase, the pecking order, came into English terminology as well. And of course, it's a very familiar phrase to us now to talk about the pecking order. Now, human beings are not chickens, but we're interested in some of the same questions, and we're interested in the question of who's in charge. It's a fundamental question for chickens, and it's a fundamental question for human beings. Who's in charge? And it's a question that we all push on. So those of you who are parents will know that when you have toddlers, your children push on this question, who is in charge? Is it mum and dad, or is it actually going to be me? And when you get to the teenagers, teenagers push on this question, who's in charge, where does authority come from? But as adults, we, we do this as well. There was a, a reality TV show on, um, which was staged over the previous 12 months, and uh, they did a five-day highlight of it earlier this, this summer, um, Eden, where they'd put a bunch of 23 people on an island in the, in the Scottish Highlands. And uh, the idea was for them to create a new utopia. And actually, the whole thing fell apart very predictably. It's, as from a Christian perspective, it was very predictable what was going to happen because of what we know about human nature and sin. Uh, but the really interesting thing about watching it is not so much how are they going to survive. It was much more who's going to be in charge, who's going to get authority, because that's really the question that always comes down to. Who's in charge, who has authority, and why is that the case? Now, we're starting a, a new series today, which is linked to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. On October 
1517, Martin Luther went to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg and nailed 95 theses to the door. And what was launched there was of obviously huge spiritual significance, but also of great historical and cultural significance. That really the whole of the world was transformed because of what then happened with the Reformation. That really the Reformation was what then enabled the development of modern science and modern politics. Without the Reformation, we wouldn't have our contemporary Western liberal democracies. The whole shape of certainly European and Western culture profoundly changed by what the Reformation unleashed in terms of how human beings understand themselves and how they understand authority and all kinds of implications from that in terms of how culture and science and politics have then developed. And, and really central to the Reformation is this question, who is in charge? Where does authority come from and why? Um, we've got these little really nicely put together booklets uh, over on the, uh, on the connect table which you're welcome. I'd encourage you to take um, they give a really helpful short summary of what the Reformation was about and some of its consequences. So you're welcome to take those if you want to do some background reading. I'd really recommend them an excellent resource. And uh, this morning's message is going to be slightly different that rather than opening up, starting with a passage of scripture and opening it up, I want to tell something of the story of, of the Reformation and how the authority of the Bible was central to what happens in the Reformation. In the period of history we're talking about, 16th century Europe, the 1500s, Europe was an utterly different place from our world today. It was deeply religious in a way which is really hard for us as 21st century Europeans to, to get our heads around. But everybody believed in God. Everybody believed in heaven and hell. The whole of society was totally steeped in and completely shaped by religious belief. So a very different society from the world in which we now live. And to be a member of that society, you had to submit to this religious framework, this religious understanding, this religious belief, this religious way of life. But the problem was that the religious framework was actually very alien to most people because most people couldn't actually understand what was being talked about when God was talked about because you went to church and you had to go to church and in church everything was done in Latin and nobody apart from a very small educated elite could speak Latin. So everybody would rock up in church and the service would be in Latin and nobody would actually understand anything of what was going on. And some of that has actually come down to us in the term that we use. During the, the, the Mass, when the priest would raise the piece of bread representing the body of Christ, the, the priest would pronounce the words, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. That's what Christ said when he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we'll be celebrating later this morning. This is my body, hocus corpus meum. But nobody spoke Latin, nobody knew that hocus corpus meum meant this is my body. So that's actually, that term kind of got a bit muddled up, and it's come down to us as a phrase, hocus pocus. It's how you cast a magic spell. Hocus pocus, hocus corpus meum. This is my body. They can understand what was going on. The whole thing was kind of alien and foreign, even though they were so steeped in it and in bondage to it. And people really knew that they needed saving because people really did believe in heaven or hell. Everybody believed heaven or hell. That is a fundamental belief. People knew they need saving 
But the way that salvation was seen to come was entirely through the authority of the church. And that authority of the church began with the authority of the Pope. And then the authority of the Pope was worked out through the authority of the priests. And you would go to see the priest and you would confess your sins to the priest and the priest would give you a penance to perform, something to do or something to pray to try and deal with your sin. And then if you had tried hard enough when you died, well, you wouldn't then go to heaven straight away. You'd go to purgatory, and for centuries, or maybe for thousands of years, the thinking was you would be in purgatory experiencing extremely unpleasant things which were meant to purge you of your remaining sin. And then finally, perhaps, at last, you'd be admitted to the presence of God in heaven. And so this really was a religion of do your best. Believe what the Pope says. Do what the priest says, pay penance, and then endure purgatory. And if you do your best, then at last you might come into the presence, you might be saved. And of course the trouble with that is, how do you ever know that your best is good enough? How do you ever know that your best is good enough? And all this kind of confusion and this erroneous thinking about God and salvation and life really came about because no one had Bibles. There weren't Bibles. There were Bibles in the churches, but the only Bibles they had were in Latin. And nobody apart from, even most of the priests couldn't understand Latin. People didn't understand the language the Bible was written in. And you couldn't have a Bible in your own language if you tried. And some people, before the Reformation, there were groups who started to try and translate the Bible into German or into English. You could, people were burnt at the stake for doing that. There was a matter of life and death take a Bible in your own language and you would be killed because to do that was seen as threatening the authority of the church. And then enters a hero. Luther appears on the, on the scene. <laughs> Not that one. This one. Martin Luther. Born in 1483. Now, Luther's family had come from a fairly kind of uh, lowly position, but his, Luther's father was an ambitious man and made some money and sends young Martin off to study law at university. But in 1505, when Luther was 22, he was caught in a ferocious thunderstorm, and as lightning struck the ground near him, he cried out, St. Anne, help me! I will become a monk! makes this vow to St. Anne. He probably didn't even exist. It's the myth that Anne was the mother of Mary. He makes this vow saying, Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. And he is saved. He gets through the storm and he honours his vow to become a monk. Now his father's extremely unhappy about this because his dad wants Luther to kind of raise the family status to become a lawyer and to make money and gain prestige and not to go into a monastery. But Luther honours his vow and he has a final party with his university friends and the next day enters the black monastery in a foot. Or, uh, oh, you've gone far too far. Back. Uh, there's a foot, apparently a pretty German town. I've never been to any of these places. I'm actually going with a couple of other pastors to do a, a, a tour of uh, Reformation sites in December for a couple of days. We're going with uh, Andy Johnson from Hedge End, who's got a PhD in medieval studies, and we're going to go and look at all the German Reformation sites and eat sausages and drink beer. It will, <laughs> it will be very edifying to body and soul. 
Luther entered the monastery of Erfurt and he was a very serious monk. But then in 1510, after being in the monastery for five years, he was sent to Rome and two significant things happened to him while he was in Rome. The, the first significant thing was that he saw the corruption of the church. He saw how, how utterly corrupt it was, how rotten it was from the top down. And then he climbed the Scala Sancta. There it is. Uh, the holy stairs. Now, the, the legend is that these were the stairs which Jesus ascended when he was tried before Pilate, and then somehow, miraculously, almost these stairs were transported from Jerusalem back to Rome. And the, uh, the, the, the church taught that if you climbed up these stairs on your knees, then your sins would be forgiven. And Luther, as a deeply religious, very serious, very earnest monk, he did this. He climbed up the steps on his knees, as people still do. It's a contemporary photograph, obviously climbed up the steps on his knees, reciting the Lord's Prayer on every step and kissing each step as he went. And then when he got to the top, he looked back and said, who knows whether this is true? Going to Rome had this profound impact upon him, seeing the corruption of the church and following the instructions of the church, but beginning to question the whole basis of the church's authority and teaching. And the thing was, that as a monk and as an educated monk, Luther did read the Bible. He could understand Latin and he read the Bible. And in 1512, he was awarded his Doctorate of Theology and appointed Professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. A couple of years later, 1517, a character called John Tetzel appears on the scene in Wittenberg. I just... He just looks like a bad character, doesn't he? You can tell from his... Just, it's not a face you'd trust. Uh, John Tetzel appears on the, on the scene, and John Tetzel came selling indulgences. And indulgences were something which the, the church had cooked up, which said that if you pay money to the church, then by the authority the Pope has, you will be let off time in purgatory. Those centuries will be reduced in how much time you spend being tortured in purgatory before you're purged enough to make it into the presence of God. And there's this famous phrase that Tetzel used, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And this had uh, all kinds of... Uh, it was very effective because people... Um, he said, you, you pay the money and those people that you love, your relatives who are in purgatory, you can speed up their release from purgatory by paying. And so people did this because they wanted their, their friends who they loved to be released from purgatory. And also it seemed to have spiritual benefit for yourself, that if you did this, it was kind of a righteous thing to do. So loads of money was raised this way. It was actually what paid for St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City in, the Rome. If, in Rome. If you go to Rome and see St. Peter's, it's paid for by indulgences. And Luther was outraged by this. And so on October 31st, 1517, he goes to the castle church in Wittenberg, there it is, and nails to the door his 95 theses which contest this practice of selling indulgences. And what Luther intended was to provoke a scholarly debate among the religious elites about the practice of selling indulgences. But a printer got hold of Luther's theses, and printing was a new technology. It's uh, like the internet of its day. Technology is always very significant in how all kinds of things spread, including the word of God. And a printer got hold of Luther's 95 Theses and copied it, and it, they went throughout Europe and caused a firestorm. And the Reformation really began at that point, and it began around this question of who has authority 
in the end, does the Pope and people like John Tetzel have the authority to sell salvation to other people? Who has authority here? Now, at this point, it's not even clear whether Luther has, was really converted himself yet. Not really clear he'd really come to faith. Exactly when that happens, a, a little bit opaque. But he was wrestling with the scriptures, and he describes later on what happened, that he was particularly stumbling over a verse in Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 1.17, which says, In the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, as Luther, the religious monk, read that verse, it caused him huge emotional and spiritual turmoil because he saw it as something which was oppressive. He saw, he understood the, the perfect righteousness of God, God's perfect holiness and purity, God's complete otherness from us sinful human beings. And the righteousness of God, viewed just like that, seems oppressive and crushing. How on earth could Luther, how on earth could any of us ever live up to the standard of God's righteousness? It is such an impossible standard, so infinitely higher than anything we could achieve. How can you live according to the righteousness of God? For Luther, the righteousness of God becomes something which is actually crushing. And he says this, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, as far as he could go, he was taking it as far as he could go, he was living as blamelessly as he possibly could as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Now, this is extraordinary. Luther is a, he's given his life. He's abandoned his potentially glittering career as a lawyer. He's become a monk. He's living as righteously, as religiously as he possibly can. And yet, in his soul, all that has led him to feel is anger and hatred towards God. And, you know, that's, what dead, that's all that dead religion accomplishes in the end. If you're trying to live up to a standard you know you can't possibly meet, it doesn't bring you any joy, it doesn't bring you any peace, it just brings you turmoil and anger and hatred. Nevertheless, I beat importunately, I kept at it, I persisted upon Paul. He kept reading the scripture in Romans, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted. What does this verse mean? And then the moment of breakthrough came and Luther found the answer was right there before him in the scripture says this, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. Luther suddenly saw that righteousness wasn't something which he had to strive for and earn, but it was something which was going to be given to him by God. In response to what? Paying, penance, giving money to John Tetzel, climbing stairs on your knees? No, simply by faith, by believing righteousness is a gift. He goes on, and this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness. It's righteousness just given to us, not earned by us. 
with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Suddenly this religious monk, born, steeped in a religious culture, given his whole life to incredible discipline to pursue God, suddenly as he reads the scripture, he understands what the gospel is. He understands where righteousness comes from. He understands it's a gift from God. Not something to crush us, but something to liberate us. And suddenly he's, he's, he, I'm born again. This feeling, this experience of salvation. Not something to be purchased, but something given. The answer came through the Bible. Luther sees that the righteousness of God is not a standard to crush us. And in the church of the time, the righteousness of God was something which was just there to crush you. And in 21st century Britain, we don't live in the same kind of religious context, but people pursue righteousness still. And the pursuit of righteousness, without actually knowing righteousness from God as a gift, the pursuit of righteousness always crushes you. And people always pursue righteousness. We don't do it like Luther did anymore. We do it through other ways. Why, why are Bournemouth Football Club, why have they now got the LGBT symbol on their shorts? It's a pursuit of righteousness. It's a desire to be seen to be right. Everybody pursues righteousness in one way or another. But any standard of righteousness will in the end crush us because you can actually never be righteous by what you do. There is a standard of righteousness, which is God's, and it is infinitely higher than anything we could ever achieve. But God in his mercy gives us his righteousness. Righteousness of God, it's not a standard to crush us, it's a gift to live by. It's not a burden to weigh us down, it's wings to give us life. And God made himself known to Luther through the scriptures. And what Luther found was that authority rests in the scriptures. In the end, authority didn't rest with the priest, and it didn't rest with the pope. It rested in the scriptures. That's where we find authority. That's where we find truth, in the Bible. 1520, Luther was excommunicated. The pope sent him a, what they called a papal bull, which wasn't a bull, like a cow, but there was a... Uh, a letter saying you're excommunicated, you're no longer part of the church, you're, no long, you're not going to be saved, you're going to go to hell. And that, he did that because what Luther was teaching was a threat to the Pope's authority. And in 1521, uh, Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms, which we think of as like this. That's not what it is, it's not a Diet of Worms. It's the Diet, which is a kind of a council, a hearing, a judgment of, in Worms, which was another pretty German town. There you go, much more attractive. He was summoned to the Diet of Worms to give account for what he was teaching. And Luther said this, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe, God help me. Amen. And with that declaration, Luther said, my it's in the Bible. That's where authority is. Any other authority is secondary to the Bible. Now, that's a dangerous thing to say. One of the great miracles of the Reformation is that Luther wasn't burnt at the stake. 
and as he left the Diet of Worms, actually he was kidnapped, and it was an arranged kidnapped, uh, a kidnapped, some a powerful friends uh, arranged him to be kidnapped and taken to Vortberg Castle, and uh, while he was in Vortberg Castle, that looks nice as well, doesn't it? Uh, while he was in Vortberg Castle, he started to translate the Bible into the German language, and the Reformation ran and ran. And years later, Luther, describing all this, said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The words did it all. The words did it all. The world was changed because the authority of Scripture was recognized and unleashed. For the last uh, nine years here at Gateway, we've been using these Bibles on a Sunday morning, and uh, it's come time to replace these Bibles. And part of the reason that we want to replace them is because they're nine years old, and most of them are falling to pieces, and we have fewer and fewer copies which have all the pages in, which isn't good. Uh, so we need, we need to replace them. Um, also, nine years ago, when some people in the congregation were saying the print is very small, I said, oh, that's fine. Strangely nine, year, <laughs> strangely, nine years on, I find myself doing this every Sunday. So a version with a larger type is appreciated. So that's practical considerations. Um, so we are actually going to introduce these Bibles, and the team are going to hand them around. I'd like you all to have one in your hands, so if the guys are going to pass them around while I talk about them. So these Bibles are different. They're different because the text is mercifully larger. So hopefully, for those of us who struggle with their eyes, it'll be a little bit easier. Also hardback, so maybe rather than nine years, these will last... 15, we'll see. I'm actually amazed the other ones have last nine years as paperbacks, done really well. Um, and this is also a different translation, so we have been using the English Standard Version these last nine years, which partly we moved to because at the time this was probably the most faithful translation of the original languages into English, and was a version that we had real confidence in. Since then, the NIV, a new international version, has been updated and improved in many ways. And uh, these are both excellent translations of the Bible. The thing about translating into, uh, out of the Greek and out of Hebrew and Aramaic into, into English is it's, you can never do an exact like-for-like, -like, word-for-word translation. So there's always some kind of uh, interpretive issues about how you actually just, what words you use and what phrases you put together. Um, and uh, both versions are great in many ways. Both versions have other things. I prefer translation of one version to another in different passages. Uh, probably the NIV is slightly easier in terms of how it's read. It's probably slightly easier to listen to when we read it in church. It's probably slightly easier to follow. And uh, so for those reasons, because we could get this version in a decent-sized type in hardback, and because the updated NIV is an excellent version, which is probably slightly easy to follow, we are adopting this Bible. So I'd really encourage you in your own personal Bible reading to actually use both. Use, use the NIV and use the ESV. Sometimes it can be very helpful to see how the translators translate and, and put one against another and, and see a slightly different way uh, words are put together. Uh, but this is the one we're going to be using 
uh, in future Sundays here at Gateway. And another reason why we've done this, the reason why we actually have bothered to replace these rather than just say, oh, whatever, we use their phone now or we can put it on the screen, is because we do believe there is value in having the tangible, physical, uh, paper object in our hands, which is different from just looking at it on the screen or looking at on, on, on your phone. But we actually want people in the church, and certainly people who are new and not familiar with the Bible, to understand the Bible as a book, as a collection of books, and how that collection of books fits together. And it's much easier if you've got the tangible, physical, paper object rather than just the app on your phone. To uh, so help on that, of course, at the beginning of the, of, the, of, the, of the Bible, it's got a list of the books as in the order they appear. And also, helpfully, a page over, it's got the, an alphabetical list of books of the Bible. So if we're saying, find the book of Haggai, well, if it's Haggai, well, you can turn to the alphabetical list of the Bible and it'll tell you that Haggai is on page 948. So hopefully, we, we want people to be familiar with the Bible and get comfortable with using it. And so we want you to have the, the, the physical object in your hands. And also it really helps us to be reading from the same version on a Sunday. And it's also very helpful to be able to just announce page numbers, which makes it easier for everybody to look them up. So we wanted to stick with, a, with phys- the physical object of the Bible. And also because we, just, we do reverence this book. We don't worship it. There's nothing inherently by the paper itself which is kind of magically sacred. But the word that's in it is precious and living. It's God's word. And having the physical object in our hands, I think, can actually, it connects with our hearts and with our minds, with our spirits, to help us to say that we we reverence what's in here, the Word of God. So this is the Bible we're going to be using until these ones fall apart and we see what happens then. It's in this book that we find authority. Let me give you a comical illustration of this from the Reformation. 1522. In Zurich, in Switzerland, season of Lent, the six weeks leading up to Easter, a citizen of that city hosted a sausage party. Sausages feature prominently in the story of the Reformation. Which, uh, the Reformation is good on so many levels, <laughs> and sausages are just an incident. One of the very good things about the Reformation, one of the advantages of the Reformation being born in Germany, sausages. Um, somebody hosted a sausage party. And that was an act, actually, of defiance, because in Catholic Zurich, you were not allowed to eat sausages during Lent. The church had decreed no sausages during Lent. And so a sausage party was a kind of a testing authority. And the Zurich Council fined the host of the sausage party. Now, can you imagine, in our context, if you had a sausage party or, and somebody came along from Bournemouth Council and said, we've heard you had a sausage party... We're going to fine you for your sausage party. And it's unbelievable, but that's how the world was. And Zwingli, who was another of the leaders in the Reformation, he wrote a pamphlet in which he explained how the Bible says nothing about sausages and Lent. <laughs> and therefore, you are free to eat sausages whenever you jolly well like. Because the authority is in the Word of God. Not in the Pope, not in the traditions of the church. It's this book alone that we need. This is our authority. Now, it's never this book on its own. Actually, Luther and Zwingli and the others, they didn't reject the teachings of the church. They mined deeply the teachings of the church, the traditions, the authority of the church. 
But the thing is that those things must never be over this. It's always got to be the Bible which is over them. And if you have it the other way around, you end up in all kinds of craziness where you have things like you can't eat sausages during Lent. Keep the Bible. The Bible is our authority. Now, I am almost out of time. I just wanted to very quickly talk about how we know we've got the, this is the right book. Because this is a question people have. How do we know this is, and how do we know the books in this book are the right books that should be in, in this book? Just very, very quickly, can you put up the next slide? This is um, Eusebius, who's a Christian author from the third century. So early on in the history of the church, and already by this time, and, and at least a century before Eusebius, the canon, the books of the New Testament have been largely agreed. And you can see, um, it's, it's as we have it, the, the one real question is, the, is, the, is Revelation. At that stage, some people were saying Revelation is, should be in the Bible, and other people weren't so sure. There was a debate about that still at that point. But sometimes, you know, you, you get, hear stuff on the news. Somebody's found something new about the Gospel of Thomas. Or, uh, the, the, guy, the guys in the early first couple of centuries of the church, the guys all knew about those other writings, and they knew they were rubbish. And so they were in the heretical column already. And so sometimes people can get very phased. Oh, I've heard this Gospel of Thomas. What, how do we know that's not really in the... Well, nobody's ever believed that should be in the Bible. So right from the early centuries of the church, what books should be in the Bible were already pretty well established. And uh, we might say, well, how do we actually know they got it right? And there are a whole number of ways in which we can, we can know it's right. I mean, in the end, it becomes a bit of a circular argument. The, the argument really is we know that this is... the the books we have which make up the Bible are the right books because the Bible tells us so. And we can say, well, it's a very circular argument, which it is, but of course it would be because if this is the, author- if this is the word of God, there's no authority higher than it. And so the books that are here are not dependent upon the, in the end on what any particular individual says or what any archaeologist or scientist says. It just is the word of God, which by God's providence we have that actually God has been involved in this, God has determined which book should be in this Bible, and by faith we accept and believe that, and we sit under the authority of it. And throughout the centuries of the church, the people of God, as they've read this book, have seen the attributes this book contains, the way it reveals who God is and what he is like, the way that the church together, millions and millions of people for 2,000 years have found as they've opened a book that actually this is life-giving, the way that we can trace eyewitness origins that those who wrote the books of the Bible were eyewitnesses of, of the events or, or knew the people who were. And all those things give us confidence. And then we have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. That as we read it and as we preach it and as we pray it, we find that God is active through it. There's a lot more we could say about that if we had more time, but we have a confidence that this is God's word. It's the right book, the right words, the right books in it. And we believe it and we submit ourselves to it. Let's just finish by quickly turning to a scripture. The Bible is where we find Jesus. The Bible isn't just about Jesus, it's where we meet him. You know, Luther knew all about Jesus until he found Jesus as he studied Romans chapter 1. Let's just turn quickly to 2 Timothy. It's on page 1196, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his friend Timothy, and he says this, verse 15. From infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's faith in Jesus that saves us. In the end, it's not faith in the Bible, it's faith in Jesus. But the Scripture shows us Jesus. It's in the Scripture that we meet Jesus and the Scripture inspires faith. How did Luther come to faith? It was as he wrestled with Scripture that he suddenly understood what righteousness was. He understood it was a free gift from God, not a burden to crush him, but wings to lift him. It's what the Scripture does. From infancy, you've known the Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And, and this book is a, is a living thing. See what Paul says next, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book is God-breathed. It is not just the imaginings of men. It is given by God. God breathed in his words. His inspired word was given to his servants to write down for us. And think about this word that Paul used. It's useful for us. It's useful. It's useful to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us so that we know how to live. We know we might be equipped for every good work. What, what, dead, what the religion that Luther pursued all those years of his life before he suddenly saw what faith and righteousness really are, what dead religion does is say, do good to earn righteousness. Do your best. Do good to earn righteousness. What, what the scripture reveals to us is not that, but what scripture stirs in us is faith by which we receive righteousness in order to do good. The scripture teaches us, it instructs us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, so we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's what the scripture produces in us. It empowers us to do good works. We don't do good works to get righteous, but because we are righteous by faith, good works flow out of us. The scripture shows us how. And so we need to be careful to keep the Bible as our authority. In Luther's day, there was a, a corrupted authority because of a corrupted church. In our day, we don't deal with the same corruption of the church. That's not the issue of our culture in the same way, but there are all kinds of other authorities that people bow to. Perhaps actually the most pernicious authority that we bow to in our culture is the authority of the self. I'm in charge. I have authority. And we can actually Christianize this. We can, we can turn our personal opinions and feelings into authoritative decisions. And certainly I've encountered this at times with Christians, those who are righteous by faith, but something happens in their life and the Bible clearly shows them how they should respond and they don't like what the Bible says and so they, they actually make their authority higher than the Bible's authority. Now I don't think I'm going to do it that way. I don't think the Bible can be quite right there. And suddenly those who claim to have faith in Jesus and believe his word, suddenly rather than being under the word, they put themselves over it. We mustn't do that. The Bible must remain our authority. The Bible speaks God's word to us. It's where we meet Jesus. Listen to what Luther says about this. This is fantastic. 
people generally think, if I had an opportunity to hear God speak in person, I would run my feet bloody. If God was going to speak to me in person, there's anything, there's nothing that would stop me. But you now have the word of God in church, and this is God's word as surely as if God himself were speaking to you. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Read the Bible. It's there. You want to meet Jesus? Read the Bible. Now, we, we believe in, in prophetic utterance. We believe that God speaks to us now, spontaneously, freshly. We've got our evening on 1st of October where we're going to gather and learn more about the prophetic. But even in that, we are submitting to Scripture, not replacing it. And sometimes we can be far too concerned, I need God to speak to me personally about something. God has spoken to you personally. In the 66 books of the Bible, it's here. This is our authority. As Paul says to Timothy, it's the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Scripture alone. Jesus, I pray that we might be a church who are submitted to your word. Lord, thank you for this book. Lord, thank you that we live in an age where we, have, we can just walk into a shop and buy a Bible and there's no threat of death upon us for reading it in English. Lord, thank you that uh, Luther and others fought these battles which brought liberation to, to European society in so many ways. And Lord, I thank you for the authority that we now see on your word. And I pray that, yes, we would be a people who sit under the authority of this book. I pray this would be our, our guide. I pray this would be our plumb line. I pray this, we would be made wise through the scriptures. I pray that we would submit to it. I pray where we need correcting and rebuking, we'd submit to that. I pray where we need teaching and instructing, we would be open to that. I pray that we might be equipped for every good work because we're people who feed on this word. May we not take the scripture lightly, but may we feed on it and dwell on it and beat on it, Lord, that we might hear your voice speaking to us. Thank you that you speak to us as we gather. As scripture is read, the voice of God is spoken to God's people. Lord, we want to have confidence in this book because, Jesus, we have confidence in you. Thank you that you are the ultimate authority and your authority is made known to us through the words of scripture. And we choose to delight in that. And like Luther say, we are entering the gates of paradise because of what is revealed to us in the word of God. Amen.